Hi, I'm Johnny Pollard, and welcome to episode 10 of the One Giant Mind podcast. In this episode, Kenny and I get locked in a riveting conversation where he opens up the whole ego can of worms. Ego is a term that's often thrown about but seldom understood. And in this episode, we take some time to really unpack the subtler dimensions of what it is we refer to as an ego that personally I think is a game changer in understanding the way in which we show up in the world. Let's get into it. So, Johnny, you were just about to describe to us how the process of meditation and the pursuit of these truths is just as easy and gratifying as eating a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> Very simply, how the hell is that possible? Okay. <laughs> this, the, the, the details that I failed to uh, include in that statement were the timeframes um, involved in the, in the different practices. But I'll, I'll elaborate on it. Yeah, let's open up a little bit. So speaking very uh, literally and very practically about meditation and how it cultivates the direct experience of all these things that I'm describing as being our nature, which is the propensity to want to serve the moment to cultivate greater connection, which is an expression of our own relationship to ourself and share in that, which is connecting with somebody else. And in that shared experience of two, ex two experiences coming together, two realities, two self-awarenesses joining as one, we create a third thing by which we come to know ourselves and share ourselves and know somebody else and share in somebody else's wisdom, this transaction is primal, is a primal need of our well-being. We require this intimate interaction for us to flourish as human beings because it is the mechanism by which we find meaning and can contextualize our internal reality. If our internal reality just remains internal and we don't get to share it, it turns in on itself. It creates a kind of infection of the mind. If we are not expressive, it begins to turn rancid. Mm. And so as a, an essential function of our humanity, for well-being, for the mind to grow, flourish, and our, our sense of self to flourish, it must be shared. And we know, at least on a biological level, that everything is intrinsically connected. It's inextricably related, correlated, both on a, a tangible physical level, but also on a subtle energetic level. If only the electromagnetic fields that we exist within on the planet. We are linked, bonded to each other. And the way in which we are expressive must include the awareness of, the connection to, and the nurturing of 
this underlying nature of our unity. And when we meditate, what it does is it simply delivers us into a state of awareness where we are able to detect this. The moment that we detect it, we're experiencing it. The nature of our self becomes revealed. It's not something that's learnt in some sort of chronological, linear, intellectual pursuit of knowledge and the way in which we're indoctrinated to learn, and the way that we are educated. Learn this, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this. Remember it. Take a test. Doesn't matter if you forget it now. Now get out there and work. When we're talking about the principle of learning, when we have the direct experience through meditation of a deeper, subtler, abstract reality that feels more expressive of who we are. What occurs through the repetition of that experience is it becomes increasingly more familiar to us. We develop a more coherent, dynamic relationship that becomes conceptual, that becomes linear, but only to be expressed on that level, to be interacted with on that level, but not defined absolutely on that level. The experience of ourself is defined through the experience of the self. It's not defined through the intellectual conceptualization of it. So where does the ego fit into all this? Right? I mean, I got to imagine that's a big obstacle. It all depends on what your definition of ego is. Well, I mean, just a more general classic idea. I mean, you know, our ego is a major contributing factor to what we do and why we do things. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like to me, correct me if I'm wrong, when you pursue a meditative practice, you're in some way releasing the ego or ignoring it or putting it aside or just allowing it to flow through you um, in ways where it's not going to kind of drive you, right? I, I think of this because of two reasons. One, for the specific practice of self-meditation, right, when you're doing this practice on your own, but also when you talk about the connection between two people, ego often is a very strong player. You know, is there room for it in this world that you're, that you're kind of describing? Mm. And, and is it destructive? Is it like, right? Is there space for it? Right? Because, you know, in sort of in the psychoanalytic world, the ego is kind of the evil guy. Mm -hmm. Right, you're all. Everyone's trying to kind of keep their ego in check to not blind themselves from the reality in front of them. So, do you feel the same way about the ego? Yeah. So, my definition. I think what's really important before we. I hope I didn't bring something that wasn't there into it, did I? I mean, no. But but there's no rules here. Yeah. yeah, You know, bring whatever you want. (laughs) You know, if my worldview can't. Um, reconcile it in some way, it means there's a gaping hole in it, and I welcome the revelation of that so that I can work out how to fill it. Yeah. So uh, I think what's really important is to take a moment and define the ego um, so that I can then contextualize my relationship to the concept and also the experience and then effectively answer your question. Yeah. Uh, and it's really important to take moments to do this because there are a lot of terms that get bandied around a lot, that we assume we all agree on what that means. And 
one of the great disciplines that I've been trained to do is to always really be very clear about my definitions of words, particularly in the position of teaching, um, because you know, some would argue, oh, it's just semantics. But actually, when we're using language as an instrument to describe or delineate, you know, the way things work, we, we need to be as sharp as we can with our, with our definitions. So it's not to say that this is the absolute definition of ego. It's just this is the, the definition that I associate with the sound or the word ego, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, ego is simply sense of self it's not good it's not bad it is just the awareness that i exist and i am an individual in this existence and it gives me context for how to be in relationship with the world that's my definition of it Mm. and so the big question is well why has it become demonized what what are we referring to which gets referred to as the ego, as this kind of prankster, joker, saboteur of true happiness and fulfillment. From my model, the ego is a pure, innocent state of awareness of our being. Mm. The ego actually, in its most pure state, is like when you think of a baby, when they look up at you, as a as an infant, they know that your your daddy or your mummy or whatever, and they recognize that they're in relationship with you. Love flows between you. The baby has an awareness that it exists. There is ego there. There is an awareness of its individuality, mm. and that the essence of that remains through our whole lives. So the big question is, what? aspect of our personality causes us to impose our self-importance and that is disproportionate to the truth of the dynamic. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's just refer to it like that. My sense of self is distorted to an extent that it is disproportionate to the reality of whom or what I am interacting with. When somebody acts or behaves in a particular kind of way where their sense of importance is attempting to dominate yours, we would tend to refer to them as someone who's got a big ego. The only difference in the way in which I would structure that phrase is rather than say they've got a big ego i say they've got a distorted ego and there's a big difference here when we have a distorted ego it means that the relationship that we have to our sense of self is distorted there is some agency or filter that is acting as a middle a middleman that is interfering with or interrupting the experience of self. Now, if somebody has what is generally referred to as egotistic tendencies, to me, to be more accurate, what I, what I identify as taking place there is that they have a deficit in self value on a much deeper level. 
and have constructed a persona to compensate for that perceived deficit and project that in order to validate who they are. Now, this is a very sort of nuanced distinction. It's really important when we're interacting with somebody that has a distorted ego that is projecting an inflated sense of self upon you in order to dominate the dynamic to identify that it is not the size of their ego that is creating the problem. It is the mistake of their self-awareness, the mistake of who they truly are. There is a distortion, but it is not the size of the ego because ultimately what we're really desiring to do is to not kill the ego, but expand it so that we recognize it as the size of the universe. Mm. If we're going to identify with the truth of our existence, physics suggests that we are of the entire universe. We don't just belong to the earth because the earth came from the stars. Everything is interconnected and that the, the fabric of life is infinite and infinitely correlating, infinitely connected, to be specific. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if I am of it all, then shouldn't I be attempting to identify with the whole thing as the self? I propose that this is the original intention of all meditation practices that emerged out of wisdom traditions. Enlightenment is determined by one's ability to identify with the full, with the entire field of creation as self. And they define that as the ego expanded into infinity. <laughs> That's a big ego. <laughs> and that actually what we describe as being a big ego is actually a very small ego, a very small sense of self a deflated sense of self that requires some kind of manufactured personality to be strategically projected at moments where one feels vulnerable. That's, that's, that's all that is. And so I want to really emphasize that as something to consider when pursuing this experience of expanding your self-awareness, because what you hear so often <laughs> When people that consider themselves spiritual or, you know, on a, on a path of personal development, they'll begin their sentences with no ego. Today, I recognized that I dot, 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 dot. And they'll, they'll talk about something that they saw in themselves that they liked. But they had to preface it with, this is not my distorted consciousness talking right now. This is not my distorted sense of self. People are so afraid of trusting that the, the expression of self-love mm -hmm. is pure because of this notion that there is some abstract thing we call the ego that's just evil and it's there and it's elusive and it just it's always there and how do we control it? And the reason why we're struggling with it is because we're, we're not viewing it correctly. The ego is pure. It's beautiful. If, if you see something beautiful about yourself, proclaim it. Mm. To the extent that 
it generates greater connection, growth and belonging. Don't preface your statements with, now this is not my ego speaking. <laughs> Just be you. Just embody the experience, share it, and let the extent to which you, the statement generates greater connection, growth and belonging determine to what extent that expression is pure. And let, let the moment determine that. Because actually it is still to, to pronounce that this is not coming from the ego in that paradigm is absolutely an expression of a distorted sense of self. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is indicating that you haven't yet fully come to terms with your innocent nature, your beautiful innocent nature, and that you're always having to preface, justify, whilst ever it's a defense mechanism. This is not ego. <laughs> I'm not speaking from ego now. It's like, well, you're speaking from something that is not exactly where you want to be coming from. And it's so important that we lift the lid on this one and just like nip it in the bud real quick, break the habit. And if it feels uncomfortable, feel the discomfort, but stop saying that. <laughs> and you'll notice a perfect, because it's a crutch. It's like a psychological pseudo spiritual crutch that's causing you to, to limp around and there's nothing actually really wrong. Throw the crutch away and run, be free. <laughs> um, so what was, the, what was the question now that I've defined ego? Uh, <laughs> well, in that definition, I guess it doesn't really play, but, um, you know, if love is connection between two people, things, yeah. ideas, right, or multiple mm-hmm. people, and ego we know is a very big part of just human existence, whether mm-hmm. it's distorted or false or what have you, I guess, I guess more appropriately then, how does one negotiate the waters when confronted with distorted egos or, or false egos or, mm-hmm. uh, right? right? Because distorted it's, it's, self. Distorted, distorted self. self. I mean, yep. it's, it, it, typically those can be very difficult challenges to overcome when you're yeah. confronted with them. Yeah. Right. They're, they're, they're major triggers. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is just simply the pursuit of a meditative process or practice that will kind of like, just make it all go away, like eating a cookie, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we'll um, get back to that, by the yeah, way. We'll right. So we can hear how it's going. <laughs> eating a cookie. But, um, is it as simple as if I engage in a daily meditative practice, then when I'm confronted with these personality types, I will be better equipped to handle it. Yes. In, in a way that's more caring mm-hmm. and more nurturing and more compassionate. More compassionate. Yes. The, the answer is yes. Yes. So just yes. And it was just and, right there. It was just right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. And it is a practice. It is a journey. It is a process of discovery. And it is constantly revealing itself to us in every single moment. It is constantly revealing itself. And what's revealing itself is the true self, the ego, the pure state of, of awareness, and the condition, which is what I have been indoctrinated into, the way in which the world, the mainstream has influenced me, be it my parenting, my education, society, culture, my best friends, all of that. I am becoming aware of my ego, my true self, my sense of self, mm-hmm. and the conditioning the relationship that I have between the two and learning to become more sophisticated. Mm. 
more mm. elegant in the way that I navigate and uh, interact in that relationship. It is because I would argue that every single one of us perpetually are to some extent becoming increasingly more aware of an aspect of our expression, our psyche, our personality that is inauthentic. Mm. We are looking at it. To what extent, one, am I aware of it? That's the first thing. The first stage is become aware. Once we're aware, two, is to cultivate an adult relationship, almost like a parenting relationship, to the phenomenon of this fragmented aspect of our psyche that seems to kick in when we feel threatened. It's like a defense mechanism. And sometimes there are layers. It becomes very, very complex for some people. Layers and layers and layers of defense, depending on how wounded they've been through their life. And some of us have been brutally wounded. And the psychological damage, the emotional layers of defense are very complex. And this is why we have things called therapists and, and, and psychologists and psychiatrists that help us to, you know, move through these layers. And so what we're seeking to do is establish a adult relationship to this projection of essentially an internal wound. We manufacture a personality that counteracts, that acts as like a defense mechanism so that something can't access that. When somebody's being egotistical, what they're doing is they're overcompensating for something that they feel is that there is a deficit or a wound or something that's missing on the inside. And we want to, in our awareness of it, learn how to love ourselves through that and not judge ourselves when we become aware of it, because this is what happens. We become aware of these layers and we start tearing ourselves to pieces. We think that we're these terrible people. <laughs> and by the way, there's, there's no evidence to suggest that this is any way to resolve that situation. The only way that we can really dissolve these layers that exist within us when, they, when we're confronted with them is through stillness and acceptance, a feeling through the pain that is associated with it, and psychologically choosing to care for that wound and to make a choice to seek an alternative perspective that is reflective of that, that compassion that we're expressing for ourselves. So it's an active pursuit. Yes. I mean, you have, to, you have to come to that point where you make that choice. Yes, in every moment. And you, you will forget it, and then you'll remember it. And the trick is not to beat yourself up when you've forgotten it. Mm. Remember, forget, remember, forget, remember, forget, remember, forget. This is how the game goes. And what I suggest everybody does <laughs> is just accept that this is the game. <laughs> Welcome to planet Earth. Welcome to being a human being. You know, this is, this is what it entails. And if we go, this is all that's really going on, and I make this priority number one, I can get really good at this, being a human thing. <laughs> it's just that we don't prioritize it. Mm. We're so busy trying to get out there <laughs> and not taking time to actually cultivate the, the, the skill to operate the, the, the machinery of our humanity. So is this a modern construction? Was there a time when supposedly pe pe people weren't supposedly? Mm. I mean, 
how far back do you have to go? Um, well, it depends on what culture you look at. I mean, there, there is evidence to suggest that there have been highly evolved, very sophisticated cultures it, it, in all different areas and continents on the planet at different times in history. Yeah. I tend not to dive too deep into that stuff because, you know, we live in a time where facts about things that happened in the past have become so convoluted and distorted um, across every field of history and, you know, with no disrespect to historians because the pursuit of trying to understand where we've come from to understand where we are right now is a noble pursuit. And I always, you know, admire the, the perseverance of historians to try and piece together the puzzles amidst the, the deception that I think has been a, a key, a core theme throughout history. You know, distort, tell, retell the story of the past to control the masses of the present. I think that that's been a constant theme playing out through our, through our history. I think that the fight or flight response and the need for greater power um, and control has been a dominant theme. And I think, no, I'll rephrase that. My, my hope is, my, what compels me to do what I do is this sense that we, we have the potential now to really steer humanity into a different direction. As I've described before, take a paradigm shift, a paradigm expansion that takes into consideration what it means to really exist, what it means to coexist on a planet that has so many people, mm -hmm. so many living organisms, mm -hmm. and a common reason to work together. You know, mm -hmm. I think more than ever, uh, our, our annihilation <laughs> is, uh, it's, it's a reality. It's, it's a card that's on the table. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, <laughs> to my mind, that seems like the only thing that could really harness that much support, mm. right? Faced with the real prospect of if we don't do this, annihilation is certain. Mm. I mean, you know, this is not a new theme or, or idea. I think it was uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt who famously said, people do not change because of intellectual pursuits or learning. They change through catastrophe. Yeah, crisis. Yeah. Through crisis. Yeah. So, so, you know, we're sitting here today and you're largely, you know, you're recognizing a crisis in the world. Mm. Right? I think you actually used those words earlier on. Crises. Yeah, crises. Like, you have like plural everywhere. So, <laughs> so I'm sitting here wondering like, are other people really aware of it? I, I don't think so. Right? Like, I'm not trying to be pessimistic about it. I mean, I'm a realist by nature, which I guess most people make me think I'm a pessimist because of that. But, you know, the cookie's a lot easier. And I'm still waiting for you to tell me why. Yeah, the cookie. <laughs> <laughs> the cookie. And meditation is like the same thing, you know, right. because, because I will sit there and have a cookie all day long. But you know what? It's ultimately bad for me, mm -hmm. right? Because it's going to make me fat and it's going to mm -hmm. clog my arteries. And, you know, mm -hmm. but it's easy. And it satisfies an immediate desire today. It's soothing. It, 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 can be, it can act as all these things that, you know, I might say, why would I sit quietly when I could just have cookies? Mm -hmm. And if cookies don't do it for me, I can go to brownies. If brownies don't do it for me, I'm going to graduate to cocaine. Yeah. Right? Like, there's all these things that are just pleasure-seeking, mm -hmm. maybe defense mechanisms by, by definition. Yeah. But – 
they're more immediate. They're probably easier to access just on the surface, although you know, I'm sure you'd have a different take on that. Because ultimately, there's no crisis, hmm. right? There's, there's, there's. Why, why, why am, why am I? So right, like yeah, I know what like, you're asking. Like, like for, do we have more tools? Yes, at our disposal to kind of spread that a little bit, right, and, right, and get people to see it, or maybe that's an impossibility. Hmm. Like, we, am we, I asking too much? Uh, well, you just asked a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I and I, and I and I and I'm, I'm going to categorize my responses. <laughs> So you asked the question, you know, or you made a statement, you know, well, no, I think it was a question. Are people, are, are people even aware that there's a crisis? Yes. That, that and is. I am absolutely convinced that everybody is aware that the, the world is in crisis. That is not the issue. Mm. The issue is that they are denying that they have any responsibility because they don't believe they have any power. To do anything about it. Well, that's the cookie. And that's why they're going for the cookie. Yeah. And so to go back to the cookie question, when you asked me, I was being a bit of a smart ass actually, yeah, when yeah, you sure. asked me that question. I was, you know, making a statement based on a technicality, mm-hmm. which is that when one gains a state of self-awareness that is stable and sustained for, irrespective of anything that's happening outside of themselves, which is a very loose term for describing the entry level of enlightenment, by the way, where the experience of love for life is not overshadowed by anything. Mm. Despite your biological reactions to somebody coming at you with a knife, Mm -hmm. um, whilst in that moment your body will react, there is always a sustained sense of compassion and love in that. Mm. That might not, you know, stop you from defending yourself, because that is also a biologically imprinted response. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, after the act of successfully defending yourself, there will be a deep sense of remorse that you had to go through that experience. Mm-hmm. So that's an extreme, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we are biologically hardwired in that way. Um, however, there is always that underlying awareness. So once we establish this state, every act serves to nurture that with the absence of that self-awareness, that stabilized awareness of your innate being, then anything that overrides the nervous system, every, anything that overstimulates the nervous system that interferes with your capacity to detect that finer fabric Mm. of love, uh, becomes a distraction. Mm-hmm. And generally, for most people, there is a layer in between the surface level of our experience and our experience of self-love. And that layer is dissonant, mm. unresolved, and when we move into it, very painful. And as life forces us to move into it, it's like getting into a, a boiling hot bath. We're just like, no, I'm not going to have a bath tonight. It's too hot. And we, we just go walk around stinky. And at some point, the stinkiness is so bad 
that we're forced to get into the hot bath. And we all know what it's like to get into a really hot bath at first. It's like, ah, ha, 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 ha. You know, we put one foot in and then the next foot and we stand there and we have to stay there for 30 seconds until our feet climatize. Ouch, 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 ouch. And then the prospect of having to kneel down and put our <laughs> bum in the hot water is like, ah. <laughs> and then eventually, and we lower ourselves in and then all of a sudden there's this moment. Oh, we move through the initial discomfort of, you know, establishing ourselves in that dissonance inside of ourselves. And all of a sudden we connect with that deeper aspect of ourselves. And it doesn't mean that the, the burning hot's gone away, but it's somehow pleasurable. It's burning, but there's pleasure there. Would you say we surrender? Is, yes. it, is, is, it, is it a surrender? It's exactly what it is, Kenny. It's surrender. And this is the this is the hardest thing for us to do, but the most important thing for us to do. Well, we're taught not to surrender. We're yes, to fight. fight, particularly in this country. Yeah, uh, that that's. I mean, that's a really great subject for another podcast. So why don't we end it there? Man, there was some juicy stuff in that one. Uh, I think the key standout for me is this notion that our humanity is not innately flawed and the responsibility that we have is to investigate through our own self-inquiry despite our self-loathing is what is our nature is this true are we inherently a pure state of intent a benevolent force of awareness and if so what is inhibiting it this is the, the, the foundation of, of what I'm trying to communicate in this particular podcast. So I really encourage you to take some time to reflect on that. Big thank you to our show producer, Trevor Exter, Sean Tomlin, the beautiful music by Ali Lieberman, and all the One Giant Mind crew. And a big shout out to Kenny for uh, stepping into the hot seat and really bringing some great conversation to the table. If in this episode you felt inspired to want to learn meditation, there's two really great ways that we can recommend. Right now you can download the One Giant Mind app and learn with our 12-step course. But the most potent way to learn is with a teacher. We recommend that you go to the One Giant Mind website, onegiantmind.com, that's the numerical one, giantmind.com, and search out one of our certified teachers. Now, if you're feeling called to become a meditation teacher, be sure to check out the One Giant Mind Meditation Teacher Training Academy. More than ever, we need expertly trained teachers to step out into the world to meet the demand of the growing number of people seeking a simple and effective way to learn how to practice meditation. We hope that you can join us for the next episode.